Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of September 25th, 2017. On this week's show, we will discuss the remarkable weekend in sports in which the President of the United States called for firing athletes who engage in peaceful, sanctioned protest, and the athletes and their employers responded in force. Then we'll stick to some sports, more or less, and explore the psyche of Golden State Warriors star Kevin Durant, who tweeted intemperately, undercover, in the third person, about his former team and coach. Finally, one-time U.S. men's national team defender Marcello Balboa will be here to talk about Atlanta United, the major league soccer expansion team that is drawing record crowds and crazy fan support. I am joined by Josh Levine. He is Slate's editorial director. He's not in the studio. Hi, Josh. Hey, Stefan. Also with us is Marcus Thompson making a return appearance to the podcast. He is now a senior columnist for The Athletic. What's up, Marcus? I'm sure you have subscribed already. Thank you very much. I have. As a matter of fact, we've also done a segment about The Athletic with the great Ken Rosenthal. We are all wishing you luck. On Friday night in Alabama, Donald Trump decided to comment on the protests against police brutality and for racial justice that took off last year after Colin Kaepernick took a knee. I was going to play a clip of Trump labeling NFL players who had protested, almost all of them black, sons of bitches, or of him calling for fans to walk out of games where players silently protest, in other words, to boycott the league. But frankly, I can't listen to them anymore. They make me sick. Instead, let us focus on what happened on Saturday and Sunday. More than 150 NFL players, black and white, took a knee or sat down during the anthem. LaShawn McCoy, who the day before tweeted, it's really sad, man. Our president is an asshole. LaShawn McCoy stretched 
and hundreds more linked arms. Coaches and owners participated. Three full teams stayed in the locker room. A Major League Baseball player knelt, the first one to ever do so. Two anthem singers knelt at the WNBA Finals. The Los Angeles Sparks didn't come out for the anthem, and neither did players on two teams in the National Women's Soccer League. There were dozens of statements issued over the weekend. Some were eloquent and moving and righteous. Some were perfunctory and weak. Marcus, Trump certainly managed to turn kneeling into a protest against him. Did the events of this weekend do more, do you think? Oh, I think they did. Uh, Seeing uh, uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars owner on the sideline, locking arms, just it's like, oh man, this is real. If the if the NFL owners who directly supported the campaign of Donald Trump is like, hold on, dude, chill. If Roger Goodell has to send a statement, and we all know Roger Goodell, like you know, he's not trying to be the responsible one. If he's like, all right, you've gone too far, then you know we have something here. And j- just watching everybody, part- Ray Lewis. Is on the sidelines kneeling. He on two knees. You you know something big has happened here with Ray Lewis, who was ripping the whole thing. Now is like on his knees praying. Like this is crazy. We it's it's amazing that uh, that the president was able to do this in a way, and in a sense, uh, it's almost uh, commendable that he could be so derogatory as to get former friends, uh, you know, to his former friends against him. That it's just crazy. The thing that um, was really notable about Sunday is that, you know, Colin Kaepernick wasn't there. Jelani Cobb of The New Yorker was saying on Twitter that um, this is the ending of the Colin Kaepernick movie. This is like where the swelling music comes in and um, his protest, you know, takes over the whole NFL and the whole country. But there's something a little bit off about the fact that the folks that blackballed Kaepernick are now being celebrated as heroes um, in a sense that Trump has made it so that in order to show our disgust with him, we need to support this league that has not covered itself in glory um, with respect to, um, you know, both Kaepernick and, and these protests and a whole lot of other issues. What do you make of that, Stefan? I completely agree with that. I'm looking at the notes I wrote before the show, and that is exactly one of the points I wanted to make. There are two things here. One is that, yeah, these statements from NFL owners and front offices and, you know, Dan Snyder was linking arms with with players uh, during the national anthem, too. And Dan Snyder is, believe me, not someone that we want to 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 praise for his uh, for his progressive beliefs and stances, I feel like we're giving these guys cover for their previous behaviors. Let us not forget, Colin Kaepernick still does not have a job, and Colin Kaepernick still, despite all of these statements from almost every NFL team, some of them great. Some of them progressive, some of them thoughtful, some ass covering. Despite all of those statements, this guy's still out of work. This guy was blackballed. And he's going to be out of work. And they're going to lean on pig socks and Castro shirts because it's really not about doing the right thing. It never has been. And furthermore, it's never even about the conversation Kaepernick was trying to start. And it, 
the hypocrisy in all of it is that in the end, they just want to sell uh, uh, tickets, right? Uh, oh, we don't want a distraction. Meanwhile, there's no Kaepernick, and now you have even more distraction. The NFL has long been exposed for being hypocritical, money-hungry, uh, self-indulgent, unrighteousness, right? Just the modicum for big business that is shady, and that's not going to change. However, they do have uh, an opportunity because if somebody signs Kaepernick tomorrow, it's like, man, my bad, we blew it. Come play with us. <laughs> Come play with us, cat. If they were smart, I'm sending out the notice tomorrow, today. Like, hey, can somebody please sign Cap? Like, this, this is the last thing we got here. If we sign Cap right now, we at least save a little face. And they've shown they can survive saving less face than that. Look, they didn't, the owners really didn't have much option here, right? The, they, they have to appear um, sympathetic and in opposition to I mean, Cass didn't what even Trump show said. up to the anthem. They didn't even show up to the anthem. And NFL was like, okay, we're not going to find you. Like that, that's that's how far we've got where the Steelers are like, yeah, we're cool. We're just not going to do it at all. And they're like, yeah, all right, we got you. We understand. And the, Seahaw- that's how, the Seahawks, that's the Seahawks and the face. Titans. The Seahawks and the Titans right? did the same thing. And they were playing each that's other. That's automatic fine right there. That, any other time, that's like fine statement. They're like, all right, we understand. It's It's all good. A couple of points here. I think the fact that the NFL, who it seems like we're all in agreement, is not an organization that you would ever consider progressive. The fact that they, um, you know, the owners and and the commissioner's office came out in support of players this strongly after Trump attacked them, doesn't that show just how amazingly awful and craven the ESPN response was after Jamel Hill got attacked, that ESPN couldn't come out and say, we don't necessarily support what she said, but we support her right to say it. And there's no way in hell that the president is going to tell us who we can employ. The fact that that statement didn't come from John Skipper, I think now just looks even worse to me. The second thing is (laughs) it's been covered a little bit less, but in the Alabama rally, Trump said, you know, in addition to players not standing for the anthem, his other complaint was that football isn't violent enough anymore. Um, that, you know, there are 15 yard penalties when you hit someone in the head and basically that the players are all, you know, wimps and like the wussification of America and all that stuff. And that statement actually kind of gave the game away for me. Not that this is like <laughs> a shocking uh, conclusion, but that this is fan service that Trump doesn't care about any of this stuff, that he's just saying things that he feels like white people um, in the middle of the country who feel like, you know, football players are rich and, you know, they're complaining and they're millionaires. And also they don't even give each other brain damage anymore. Like what's wrong with this country? Like (laughs) the, the fact that those two things were combined showed me that this has very little to do with his beliefs about patriotism and the flag. And it's just all about telling the people that voted for him what they want to hear. I just don't understand why nobody can get this dude to shut up. Like (laughs) Marcus, John Kelly is getting the white house on lock, man. It's it's everything's in order. He's like, he it's so self-destructive. It's like that. I mean, nobody can get him to chill like just chill we're just talking about football right we're just talking about like nfl players like 
somebody needs to get him to chill in foreign relations and they can't do it. Like, you know, <laughs> we're about to be in a nuclear war because this dude can't control his mouth. And it's insane. It, it is insane that the president is like my uncle who's who drinks a little, you know, a little too much and probably has an old heroin addiction, right? <laughs> it's like he, he he and my uncle are the same. It's, I can't even wrap my mind about right. how crazy he's, that is. He's, you know, he's Donnie from Queens calling into WFAN. He's the dipshit at the end of the bar. And there's no rhyme or reason here. And we've known this for, you know, some of us who lived in New York in the 1980s and 90s have known this for 30 years. He's just a guy with a mouth. What's interesting about the NFL piece is that for All that we, as you guys just both articulated, that there's no rhyme or reason to anything that comes out of Donald Trump's mouth. There's no greater strategy here appealing to some base. It's just bullshit, right? But there is a history with the NFL. Through all of those decades when banks and cities and media and elected officials, all these people were enabling Trump's businesses and his personal bullshit – Only the NFL told him to fuck off. And the first time they did it was in the 1980s when he owned the New Jersey Generals and the USFL and he pushed the USFL to move to a fall schedule to pressure the NFL effectively to give him a franchise and then sued the NFL on antitrust grounds and ran the USFL under. And then more recently when he tried to buy the Buffalo Bills and was laughed out of the room. So there's history here. And whether it connects to the you know, 17 tweets about the NFL that he's emitted up until we started taping the show. I don't know, but there is history here. So if the NFL were taking some sort of moral high ground by attacking Donald Trump, it certainly was, you know, was in, in a position to do so given their past relationship. Meanwhile, they've also given them like what, $15 million <laughs> like uh, on his campaign. He's a he's a piece to them, right? He's just a he's a cog. What uh, one thing the NFL like, and they know this, you know, even though they probably cowtailed in this PR situation here, they know they're bigger than the president. Like people are gonna ride with the NFL over the president all day, every day, uh, and and they know this. It's the arrogance of the NFL. So. I feel like Trump is just a cog for them. Like, yeah, we'll give you some money. We need somebody in this spot right here. But in the end, like, we will shut you down. And they're showing that, like, even we will even contradict ourselves and ride with players. But you're not going to beat us. And he's got, like, his he's got homies who are, like, owners. And he's choking it with them. This is the crazy part. Like, Robert Kraft is with him. And he's pushed him to the brink. That's the part that's so amazing that he has so low, like, temperance <laughs> that he's pissing off his own, his friends, his guys, who have to be like, man, dude, you're killing me. I have to put out a statement against you, even though you're my guy and I'm giving you money. Like, that's how wild he is. <laughs> Rex Ryan, I think, came off particularly badly in this whole episode. Um, you know, you mentioned... Shad Khan and and a couple of the other owners who gave Trump a million dollars for his inauguration and now seem upset with him. Rex Ryan goes on um, the ESPN pregame show, Rex Ryan, who introduced Trump at a rally and who owned up to that fact and, and his little soliloquy, but now says, I'm pissed off. I'm, I can't believe that Trump called players uh, sons of bitches. Well, you know, 
I guess it was cool when he called, you know, Mexicans coming, coming across the border rapists. Like, you know, that was fine. But if you call like NFL players, sons of bitches, then that, that crosses your red line, Rex Ryan. I mean, I think, you know, good for <laughs> owners or commentators for getting religion at this point, I guess. But, you know, people need to have empathy. Like people need to understand that when, you know, a, the most powerful guy in the world or a candidate for the presidency is saying really awful stuff about people who are voiceless or who are less powerful that, you know, maybe he could say that about somebody that, you know, or that you care about at some point, maybe, uh, you know, you shouldn't, uh, empower somebody who makes statements like that. I don't know. That seemed pretty obvious to me. You, uh, idiot rex ryan jesus christ <laughs> and that's that that's like the foundation of it all right like first off congratulations rex ryan like has a soul so we learned that and you know i applaud him for <laughs> i wasn't sure before that but all of this is about lack of empathy all of it the fact that it's being dubbed an anthem cause an anthem protest shows right. that no, like people yeah. they they don't care about what what's what the actual cause is and the point is and i know he lashed out and he had pig socks and all that the bottom line is and i've talked to kaepernick plenty times about this the bottom line is he's hurting about what he's seeing like this that's what this all is it's about this 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 sorrow you feel as someone who has made it someone who is successful and you feel bad because you're in this spot and people are hurting and it hurts you Right. I, I know the feeling. I went to college and my, my my family back at home is struggling and people hungry and I'm in college chilling and you feel bad. Right. Like that's how. So he was just hurt. He's hurting. And the answer is, dude, can you please stand for the anthem? And nobody's acknowledging the fact that Malcolm Jenkins is hurting like Michael Bennett. These are hurting people who are seeing what's happening and. All people care about is the the how they lashed out, so to speak, or how they went about showing you they hurt, and that's well, the that's, part that really gets me about you know the the Tom Brady's and the Drew Brees is you know like you know you're big on this team deal, but hey, they're teammates over there hurting. You should probably go do something about it. And we've yeah. seen some players who said, "Hey, my, my guy is hurting." That's what the uh, Mark Connor from the A's saw the catcher wanted to kneel, and he's like, "All I know when he was talking to us and he was getting choked up." I saw that that guy needed a brother today, so he puts his hand on the shoulder. Empathy is at the core of it, and we've seen how 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 much it's lacking. Um, I think a really important thing to talk about today and this week and and next week is um, Marcus mentioned Malcolm Jenkins, who you know for all the criticism of what is it they're even protesting? We don't even know <laughs> what they're protesting. Malcolm Jenkins, along with Anquan Bolden has, you know, he made a video for Sports Illustrated and he has talked relentlessly about the very specific issues around criminal justice, bail reform, like he's su supported specific legislation and policies around what he wants to see around policing, particularly with uh, people of color and um, mass incarceration. And Stefan, the fascinating thing here is, and Michael Bennett too, like talking about an extremely specific set of issues relating to what happened to him personally in Las Vegas. So I feel, I felt like this specific core, the set of players 
was drilling down and making this protest about something specific. Then Trump comes in, and now it's about the players versus Trump. Now it's about the players versus the anthem and players versus the flag. And for all that's good about, you know, I think you mentioned 150 players that are making this statement, it becomes less specific of a cause, right? And so, you know, where do you think it goes from here vis-a-vis, you know, what Colin Kaepernick was talking about and what Bennett and what Malcolm Jenkins are talking about. And this is where I think it gets really interesting and it and it falls back on the NFL to take further action. A couple of days before all of this went down, a group of current and former NFL players, including Jenkins and Bolden, wrote a 10-page memo to Goodell asking for league support and cooperation in a campaign for racial equality and criminal justice reform. So there is this document that's sitting on either Roger Goodell's desk or some PR guy's desk at the NFL with specific requests on how the league can help make this not about disrespecting the flag or disrespecting the military or disrespecting the anthem, but can take concrete steps to make its fans aware of why these African-American young men feel, as you said, Marcus, feel hurt and feel pain and want progress to occur, want change to occur. Here's a specific set of things that you, the NFL, can now do. Forget signing cap. This this is the front office. This is the main NFL office can actually do something. So can we we pause on this for a second? Just how remarkable this is that, you know, the president of the United States retweets some rando on Twitter write something just completely ignorant about Pat oh. Tillman and the flag, just not understanding at all who Pat Tillman was and what, what he stood for at all. Um, so this is the president of the United States. And as I said before, just seems to have no interest or knowledge in what's going on. And then on the other side, you have people like Malcolm Jenkins, who is an amazing football player, an incredibly smart guy, but is not someone who, you know, in his life has like, it, you know, it, <laughs> He, he doesn't have the kind of like background or resume that you would expect for some to like stand up in terms of knowledge to like the president of the United States. And yet how seriously these players are taking it, the right. fact that they've developed this memo, the fact that they know an incredible amount more than many politicians or experts in the field now, just put those two facts alongside each other. And just the next time somebody says, what are they even protesting? Just like, just think about how remarkable this moment is in American history. And it's going to get, it's going to get, uh, it's like, this is the pathway. Bolden and, and Jenkins and even Josh McCown, they've been visiting Congress, you know, for, for about, and I know they went at least last year. Like, this is the new, this is the new wave. Like, uh, and we're seeing it like with a, with a Steph Curry, uh, they're just so willing to trade to cash in their fame and they're so willing to trade in whatever influence they have that if you get enough of them on the same topic, it's going to be hard to, to overlook. And I think that's what we're seeing. Like, and Malcolm Jenkins and Quan Bolden, you know, they're great players. They're not even like the lit ones. They're not even the superstars. You know, I think that LeBron tweet was retweeted like 600,000 times. You bum. <laughs> Can we hear your thoughts about Steph, actually, Marcus? You wrote a book about Steph Curry, as we as we all know, and he's not somebody that you think of as being 
um, you know, a guy that wants to make really provocative and out there political statements. And this was kind of thrust upon him around the Warriors, you know, not wanting to visit the White House. What do you make of of how Steph has kind of been put into this maelstrom. And let me just say, here's, think, here's what Steph said. He said, by acting and not going to the White House, hopefully that will inspire some change when it comes to what we tolerate in this country, what is accepted and what we turn a blind eye toward. It's not just the act of not going. There are things you have to do in the back end that you have to push that message into motion. That's not something that we've heard from Steph Curry before. He's not the most political guy, right? No, no, he's not. And, you know, Steph prefers, he prefers the the Malcolm Jenkins role, right? Where you sneak off and you're in Congress and you're like actually doing tangible things to affect change and not kind of in the forefront. Like that's Steph's, his whole thing is like, keep me, I don't want to be in a discussion. I don't want to be out front. I want to be in the back, like, you know, making things happen. But because of who he is, you know, because somebody wrote a dope book on him and he's winning championships <laughs> and all that, now he's kind of like, He's got to say something. He's got to stand up. And I think what we've seen with this Trump situation is that he's just comfortable doing it now. He's like, all right, this is who I am. This is who I have to be. Uh, I used to be able to fly under the radar, but that's over. So here's how it's going to be. And the crazy part was the Warriors gave him an out. And he kind of was like, nah, let's get that out of here. Because they were going with the whole, we're going to meet and talk about it. We're going to give it the proper you know, the dialogue and discussion. Bob Myers was intent on trying to figure out a way to make it happen. Steph's like, yeah, this is the company line, but no, I just don't want to go. Right. (laughs) I mean, he made it clear. He ended all of that. Like, I don't want to go. And that's Steph saying, all right, let's do it. Let's do it. You got me. And you know, you know, you got LeBron. He's just like a symbol of how these athletes are starting to say, all right, all right, we may not be Ali per se, but it's a whole lot of us who who realize we got some clout and we could use it. And I think his friendship with Barack Obama helped him, right? Because <laughs> he's like, yeah, I've already done that. I, like, I could call the president and go play golf. So I really don't have to worry about this dude at all. But man, he is, I've never seen him this comfortable being part of a controversy. Like, yeah, I don't want to go. And not trying to curb his answer or qualify his words. He'd be like, yeah, no, I just don't want to go. I don't believe in this guy. And that that was like, oh, wow. It was like he got the glow, you know, like all of a sudden the bullets slowed down and he realized that he was Neo. <laughs> like that, it was like that moment for him. Like he figured out like, yeah, I don't care. Uh, I'm Steph Curry and this is, this is my message. Well, the point here, right, is that even for, for a guy like Steph, um, this gets to the whole stick to sports thing is that Trump has made it so that making no statement is a political statement. And you could make that argument in the past about Michael Jordan or whoever, but it's more true today than it ever was in the past that, you know, the situation was was thrust on him and thrust on the warriors that they had to make a decision and going to the White House is not a neutral move at this point. I'm sorry, Pittsburgh Penguins, but, you know, there was no, nothing that Steph could do to avoid this moment, and I think he handled it well and gracefully. And the last point uh, I want to make on this uh, segment is let's uh, note that L.A. Sparks also stayed in the locker room um, in the WNBA finals um, during the has, national anthem, and the I, WNBA players. The WNBA has always been in the forefront of this. Yeah, they were. They were there, like 
you know, Bruce Maxwell deserves a lot of credit, the baseball player who was the first. Mm-hmm. The WNBA players were, you know, some of the first in all of sports to, to um, speak up on racial equality. Yep. Especially as as a collective, right? Especially as, all right, let's all do this together. They've yep. been the unified front on that end. From the beginning, way back, I remember uh, with the I Can't Breathe, like they, they've, they've been on top of it. Uh, and they definitely should get some credit for and that. And they, they made a league change its policies. They wore T-shirts during pregame, were fined, talked to the league, and the league turned around and said, we're not going to punish you for silent, quiet protest. Before we get to the NBA, a heads up that on our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, Marcello Balboa is going to stick around and talk about the U.S. men's national team's precarious state in World Cup qualifying. Also going to ask him about the 1994 team's hideously ugly jerseys. If you want to hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. If you do, you can get a Slate tote bag plus bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, Kevin Durant had an interesting week. First, Nike rolled out some new sneakers, the KD-10 Finals, that seemed to be marketed at fans who embraced Durant's insecurities. Then Durant engaged with a Twitter follower on his personal account, but oops, responded in the third person and dissed his old team, the Oklahoma City Thunder, and their coach, Billy Donovan. And I didn't even realize that Durant had to apologize a few weeks ago for some comments he made about India which he had visited earlier in the summer. Marcus, if you Google Kevin Durant apologized, you get a lot of hits. It seems like Kevin Durant is just kind of naturally insecure, kind of an insecure overachiever, which isn't a bad thing, but he does seem sensitive to what is going on around him, and it seems to be creating some uh, distractions, shall we say. It's crazy, too, right? We're talking about Kevin Durant. <laughs> we're not, we're, <laughs> that's the part that, like, I... If it were me, I'd be like, all right, yeah, that makes sense. But it's Kevin Durant. <laughs> like, that that's the part that blows me away is not only is it Kevin Durant, it's Kevin Durant after answering every critic, after coming with the ultimate shut up, I told you I was right. Like he won the championship, he became the finals MVP, he was he's being anointed, and he still feels like Man, but that kind of sting. Let me shoot back, right? <laughs> the, that, like, that, the soles of those Nike shoes—they include disses. I mean, literally written on the bottom of those shoes are like what Twitter bots write about him: soft, super team, can't beat him, join him, arrogant, choked. They've got his stats from the 2017 Finals and the team 16-1 playoff record. That seems just a little bit weird. I mean, they won the damn championship, and he was the MVP, Josh. It's a little bit weird. Yeah. So the, the, the tweets that he was responding to was about him leaving OKC. And then his answer was about how he didn't like playing for Billy Donovan and it was only him and Russ and they didn't put 
the pieces around him to win a title. I guess the thing that was in two things that are interesting there are like, A, he was like being nice to Russell Westbrook. That's good. Maybe that'll help uh, repair their relationship. Um, B, but he should have though, right? That's that's the part. That's what I wanted. I wanted to shout at Westbrook to amp this thing up. I know. Yeah, that was a little bit disappointing. Do you think that um, Russ is like sitting there nodding, being like, "Yeah, that I I think this uh, this Durant guy is actually making some good points about what's going down in <laughs> Absolutely, Oklahoma <right>. City." <laughs> Russ is over there like, "You better not have. <laughs> he ain't ready for war." That's what I thought. That's what Russ is thinking. The language in those tweets, though, guys, was kind of remarkable. KD can't win a championship with those cats. I mean, who's he trying to channel, Marcus? Oh, so look, here's 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 a. I actually heard the explanation for this, and so the the the, the tweet posed the question: Give me one reason why, like, give me one reason outside of winning a championship, yeah, you will, you know, leave OKC. I think. I don't know if he necessarily knew or believed he was, you know, on a secret account, even though he clearly has those. I think he was like, all right, I'll answer this as a fan, right? <laughs> even though he's on his account, here are the reasons. Like, hey, KD, I, I, I think he was like kind of, he stepped in to be like this Twitter guy. It was like, all right, I'll give you the reasons. He, he, he can't do this. He doesn't have this. He doesn't have this. Like now, does that make sense? I, I think that's what he was doing. Uh, but the, I don't know if he was necessarily thinking I'm on the secret account. That's the explanation I was given. And I kind of get how he could do that, except for the fact that he threw Billy Donovan under the bus, but it's all just crazy because he's Kevin Durant. He's the finals MVP. Like you just, you just answered every critic. You just answered every tweet. So you don't need to go answer tweets anymore because you have this little bitty trophy. Yeah. It's over. Everybody loves you now. Why are you doing this? But you know what? It, it, having covered so many of these athletes and dealt with them, like I really do mean mean this when I say it, it is refreshing that he's a human being, and you do get to see. First off, it just reminds you, like sometimes you lose sight of it, but like dude is twenty eight, right? <laughs> like, right? Like sometimes they get so big where you think they're thirty seven and they got the world figured out. You got to remember. They're 25, 26, and, I, and these moments remind me, like, yeah, you know what? I got a little bit more wisdom than you. I've been around a block a few more times, right? Like, he's 28. But also, that dude, he's a guy. Like, he's he's a different dude because he just lets, like, he feels, and he's like, all right, I'm going to let it out. Where, where the rest of them are so, like, manicured and controlled and right. buttoned up. Like, Durant's like, hey, man, this is me. I'm I'm a little bit insecure. I'm insecure, and I want to I want to clap back at people, and I want to defend my name, and I don't like uh, being not liked. But I'm like, you know what, Durant? Yeah, yeah you know what? Be you. Go ahead and be insecure. I I appreciate that from you. Right, well, we, Kevin Durant. It shows that look, he's not an alpha personality, and that's refreshing to know because they're humans. We want to believe that you don't get as good as LeBron or Kobe or MJ or KD through preternatural ability and this crazy inhuman desire, this drive, but that drive comes from somewhere. I mean, every star has a sort of MJ getting cut in the ninth grade from the basketball team moment in their past. Some of them repress them or move on from them. And some of them incorporate them into who they are. Here's uh, here. Here's some thoughts. So 
You know, like when guys like LeBron, like when, when it's going into the playoffs, will just performatively be like, I'm getting off social media. I'm going dark because I got to really focus, which means that I have to be thinking about basketball 24 seven. And I, I couldn't possibly be, you know, scrolling through Instagram. Um, I, I think that LeBron probably has some secret accounts where he's like, just, you know, <laughs> browsing a little bit during the playoffs, you know, even, even when the main King James account is, is dormant. That's uh, point number one. Point number two is it's not like LeBron and other athletes who are really, um, huge and maybe even bigger than Durant ignore slights like LeBron. He speaks out when like people go after him, whether it's about, you know, you know, his relationship with Kyrie or whether it's political stuff, you know, as he did over the weekend, it's just that LeBron's battles, the ones that he picks are a little bit bigger, (laughs) just a little, (laughs) just a little bit. And that I think is, um, the kind of funny thing or the weird thing about Durant is that on the one hand, you know, all of the, the whole concept of bulletin board material and using perceived insults or real insults to fuel you is like a classic thing. We all know that that's, that that's done, but the song sort of like gives it empowers, you know, (laughs) the, the, the trolls out there to think, you know what? He might I can, respond. you know, go, I can go after these guys and like, they'll, they'll hear it and it'll like affect them. It's, it's just weird that somebody could be as successful as he is. And you, you know, you understand that he's fueled by slights, but slights this small. Right. <laughs> I think we, I think we're also seeing too, like the, the, the transition. I remember Draymond Green had to go through this. Draymond Green is like, he's a, he's a guy from Saginaw, right? Second round pick. He, he still could walk around target and he likes that, right? He likes being connected to people. He likes being an NBA star who's kind of feeder on the ground. But then he got to a point where it's like, he couldn't do that. And he learned because he had to slap somebody at <laughs> hanging out at Michigan state. Cause the dude wouldn't <laughs> shut up. Right. And it's like, Hey, the message is dude. Okay. I know how you started. But you've gotten too big to just be hanging with the proletariat, right? <laughs> or you know, with the I'm sorry, with the uh, with the regular people. Uh, I think Kevin Durant, the whole vibe in OKC was small town, one of the people, right? And he likes that. He likes being kind of down to earth. And I think he's got to learn, like, man, you, you're you're bigger than that. Like, especially you're in this bigger market. Like you may not be able to be with the people, right? You and, may you're not, and you're be not able the to and you're not Twitter. you're not the runner up anymore. You're the champion and yeah, the exactly, finals MVP. Right? <laughs> and you pointed out on uh, on your new athletic podcast with Tim Kawakami, he doesn't have a big entourage. He doesn't have a big stable of people. That's not him. No, he wants he's to be the, the people he's a star. Like if you talk to Durant, like I've never met a guy at his level who wants you to talk to him. Like most of these guys, it's like you got to get through their people, right? And you got to figure out an angle to get their t- uh, interest so they can talk to you. Like Kevin Durant, when I first met Kevin Durant, he just wanted to talk, right? Like he just likes he likes talking to people. It was one it's one of the things that really jumped off the screen with him. Was like, yo, he just likes to have regular conversation. Put your recorder down. Go talk to Durant. He's all in like that. He just likes it. He likes the the 
the you know the community of it and i think he's got to learn like yo i'm kevin durant i'm the finals mvp like i'm in the conversation like for top 10 players of all time like he he's got he's kind of got to get that man i'm too good for this and i don't i don't know if he can get it but well well those of us in the media i mean marcus you're you're going against your own interest there you got to say like you know you know, the thing that you need to do is just talk more. Just talk. Just tweet through it, man. Talk <laughs> talk through it. We'll get to the other side. But don't you think that a lot of what's going on here is that at a certain point, I think around when he decided to go to Golden State, but maybe a little bit earlier than that, he decided, like, actually, you know, being quiet or just saying, you know, the cliche, like, polite things is not just me. And, like, I've been burned a few times, but I think – the thing that is really my personality is just like being real with people and saying what it is. I actually believe, you know, the podcast that he's done with Bill Simmons, like he talks like very openly about like other players and other teams in the league, not in like a negative way, but in a very candid way that I think is unusual. And that I think that those of us who are fans and those of us in the media should be extremely grateful that for whatever reason he feels like, Either he wants to do it, it's in his interest to be perceived as a guy who's just, you know, keeping it real, but he, that's just like part of who he is now. And I think it would actually be a negative thing, maybe for him, but definitely for us, if after this like ghost account, third, you know, uh, Twitter issue, if he decides, you know what, the best thing for me to do is just like shut the whole thing down. That wouldn't be good. No, it'd be, it'd be terrible for me. <laughs> but, you know. Great tweets, Katie. Can, Great tweets. Keeping it real can't go wrong. So, you know, that's yeah. you got to be careful of. Like, he already had to have a conversation with Steph Curry because he was keeping it real with his thoughts about sneakers and ripped Under Armour. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, oh. so it's like, like that's the part. I, look, I, I appreciate it. It is refreshing that. Kevin Durant, you know he's going to say what's on his mind, and he wants to talk. I think it's refreshing that he can, like he could, like he would love to go sit in Pete's and just have a conversation with a dude, you know, just a random. He would love to be able to do that, but man, he's got to learn. I, he's Kevin Durant. I say get rid of the secret accounts, all of them, and just like be you from the KD tray from thirty five. Like just if you go go and go all in. <laughs> well, Joe, Joe, I also just want it. I also just want to add before we in this segment that I don't necessarily endorse Marcus's view of what happened with uh, Draymond Green at Michigan State. That guy, uh, you know, you can't go just go around uh, hitting people, even if you uh, can't. Uh, I know that's the point. Even you if they're just bending your ear and being annoying. <laughs> you, you can't. No, you definitely can't go around slapping people for sure. Well, as long as KD can uh, can deal with Joel Embiid subtweeting him, I think he'll be okay. Joel Embiid is better than MJ ever was, Embiid tweeted over the weekend. So I think that's going to be the standard to see whether KD can survive this. Joel Embiid was one of these guys who might end up like Kevin Durant. <laughs> it's like, all right, dude, you're too big. It's time to, <laughs> it's time to stop. You know, you got to push off the Twitter buffet. Josh Levine is the editorial director of Slate. Josh is going to leave us at this point in the show. Josh, thank you for coming on been a pleasure, Stefan, as always. He will be back next week, everybody. Marcus Thompson is a senior columnist for The Athletic. He's the co-host of a new podcast for The Athletic called Warriors Plus Minus, and he is the author of Golden, The Miraculous Rise of Steph Curry. Marcus, thanks. 
Thank you. Appreciate you for having me. Anytime. I'm going to take a knee somewhere. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. In Atlanta on Sunday, 43,500 people turned out to watch Atlanta United FC beat the Montreal Impact to nothing. The expansion team is leading Major League Soccer in attendance. It drew a league record 70,000 plus crowd earlier this month and a crazy unexpected pro soccer culture has bloomed in the South. Marcello Balboa earned 127 caps with the national team, played in three World Cups, played in MLS from its start in 1996 until 2002. He's now a broadcaster for Univision and the Colorado Rapids and a coach with a Rapids youth team. And he's here with me now, Marcello. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, No problem. Anytime. Atlanta United, Marcello is playing in this new $1.5 billion Mercedes-Benz Stadium, the home of the Atlanta Falcons. Jimmy Carter was at the team's first game there. Uh, You attended the record game, which you called for Univision. First off, what was the atmosphere like? You know what? It, it's probably one of the best I've seen. Wow. I mean, it's different. I mean, you if you want to compare it to Seattle and Portland, I think it's different because this was a uh, indoor. The roof was closed. 70,000 people. Uh, people were screaming and yelling and cheering and uh, just a completely different atmosphere. But it was uh, it was a special day. I'll say that. It's nice to see because when you talk about MLS, and where you would like to see the future of MLS be, that is the future of what MLS, we want MLS to be. It's it's kind of amazing because, you know, I grew up in the 70s in New York. I went to a bunch of New York Cosmos games at Giants Stadium when they were drawing 76,000 fans. And still through all of these years, through the decline of the North American Soccer League, and through the rise of Major League Soccer and the growth that the league has experienced, both in terms of attendance and in terms of getting soccer-specific stadiums in places like Colorado and New York and all over the country, the thought of like 70,000 people going to a domestic league soccer game in the United States still seemed kind of far off to me. (laughs) Oh, uh, well, you know, um, it happened before, right? It happened old back in the old NASL days. Right. And I think that soccer has grown so much since we're talking the 60s and 70s. And it's the number one sport that the kids play between the ages of 5 and 15. So I think this next baby boom generation is starting to realize what soccer is. You know what I mean? It's taken a while. It's the most popular sport in the world. Look at all the ethnic backgrounds we have here in the United States. And anywhere in the world, soccer is number one. So it's just a matter of time, I think, before it really took off here in the United States. And let's be honest, it probably scares the crud 
out of NFL. Oh, I hope it does. It probably scares baseball. It scares hockey. That's why they put it down so much. The fact that now you're starting to see NFL owners owning teams, putting stadiums up because of the fact they see the potential of what the world game is. Because let's be honest, when you talk about being world champions, there's only one tournament that I know of that's a professional tournament that you can be considered the World Cup, the world champion, is when you're playing the other countries. Now, so you, I think people, a lot of people freak out about that. Yeah, and you make a really great point there about the NFL. The uh, owner of the Atlanta Falcons um, is the owner of Atlanta United. And this stadium, yep. this stadium was designed with soccer not as an afterthought, as I understand it. Uh, it was created so that it looks like a smaller soccer bowl when you cover the upper deck. But when you cover the upper deck, historically, you know, teams would roll down those plastic tarps and it looks really yeah. jerry-rigged. But in this place, these are like mechanical curtains come down and then you <laughs> open the roof and it looks like a bowl. It looks like a smaller yeah. European-style 40,000-seat soccer stadium so bigger than what we're traditionally um have come to believe is the right size for an mls team for a u.s team so a little bit bigger than that to accommodate but then even when you want to get to that larger stadium it's there so the the foresight in designing the stadium seems really impressive to me i agree i think you go from the first soccer specific stadium in mls you look at columbus crew and then you look little by little up all these wonderful stadiums that have been put up all over the place from Orlando to Sporting Kansas City to Colorado. And then you have owners who see a different potential. Atlanta United built that stadium with in mind it's going to be shared football, soccer, specifically for those two. So I think there's just certain areas and communities. I mean, let's be honest. Who would have ever thought? that Atlanta was going to put 70,000 people in for a regular MLS game. Nobody. I think it surprised them how much excitement right. uh, Atlanta uh, United has brought to that city. So, uh, again, I still think that we're in the right. The, the important thing for MLS is the foundation. The foundation has to be strong. So our foundation is twenty-five to 30,000 seat stadiums. That's what we're looking to fill. Right. You got to have in the in the league. You got to have one or two, maybe three stadiums that has a capacity to go to fifty, sixty, so you can play bigger games there. So listen, I, I think that everything that's been done, the commitment by the owners to build these stadiums, the commitment from these owners to see, uh, and this is why they're billionaires, is because they see the potential of what soccer has, so they want it. You know, the let's also note that municipalities contribute a lot to these stadiums getting constructed, and that's a whole separate conversation about the propriety yeah. of you know cities kicking in as much as they have to kick in here. But once you get to that point, that you you acknowledge that they're going to get built, and whether it's for the Falcons or for Atlanta United or for some college, yeah. you know they're going to get built. So when let's look at those those arenas, and you know the one thing that still kind of troubles me and i'm sure it does you is that when i turn on a game from seattle or portland or atlanta and i see them playing on field turf and i think why can't i mean these are like you said these are billionaires 
And look, MLS franchises aren't NFL franchises, but why can't, yep. why is it so hard to have grass fields like they do in Europe? Is it that challenging? And do you think that needs to become a better priority, a bigger priority for the league? Listen, I, I just think that when you have double occupancy yeah. in a stadium between football and soccer and you're sharing a stadium, the abuse that sure. the natural grass would take and the rain and the way you would tear it up, it would just not conducive to what we want to play and the style of the soccer that we want to try to create here in the United States. Yeah. I mean, so that... I, under I understand in certain stadiums, you got to have Seattle because of all the rain it, with all the wear and tear, you have to have the turf. I get that part. And I think, I think they're doing a better job of, eliminating turf, those kind of turf fields. But on the other hand, I'm going to say this, you got to give credit to, to a lot of these companies because the turf that's in Atlanta, I tell you what, I walked on it and I thought, man, this is better than some of the fields that I've played on that is hard as a rock, that's bumpy. And uh, what Atlanta's got there is, is fantastic. So, and again, there's not that many left. Uh, out there, I get, you know, the Seattle, the Portland, mm -hmm. there, there's still a few that are out there, but again, I, I think that's just the, the environment. And, and that, that the city has, you know, with all the rain. Sure. And I, and I think you have to be willing to sort of give, uh, you know, you, you take what you can get, right? Everything's not going to be perfect in the first 10 or 20 or even 30 years. MLS is now 20 years in, um, the league must feel like a, a, alien place from the one that you played in uh w yeah. when it debuted compare for me the the you know sort of briefly compare for me the atmosphere and the playing conditions for players back when you started versus where we've come today and where you feel the league still needs to go <laughs> compare uh, i don't you know i think it's almost unfair to compare yeah and only because when we started the league, we all came back. I was playing in Mexico. Guys were playing in Spain and Germany and all over the place. And we came back to help start a league. We came back knowing that there was funding for three years because they made it very clear to us that there was going to be funding for mm -hmm. three years. So the first year, I think the atmosphere was, was really good only because of the fact when the league started the first few months is because everybody wanted to see what MLS was, you know, the fans, you go to certain places, DC always had a great crowd, right. you know, Colorado here, we had a good crowd. And I think little by little as time went on, you know, uh, people just kind of said, Oh, it's, it's, it's summertime. It's, it's hard to watch, you know, a two o'clock game, a one o'clock game. So like any, like any business, like any league, you you got to find the, the tweaks and, and figure it out. But initially it was good. You know, I think the concept of MLS coming to the United States, they wanted to compare it to what the old NASL was, and they wanted to compare it to other leagues around the world, which I think is a little unfair. But, you know, the second, the third, the fourth year, it kind of dropped. It kind of dropped because mm -hmm. I think people realize now that, now that there's a league, they want to see a little bit more talent. You know, and, and it didn't help that after the 98 World Cup, the U.S. didn't do what we didn't do well. So people started comparing 
national team games and national team World Cup games to MLS. And they started comparing the money that the EPL spent compared to MLS. Sure. So I think the U.S., the, the, the MLS went through a lull. But here's the best part is they never broke and they never cracked. People kept on supporting it and kept on supporting it. And we knew eventually that it would turn around with more money. And we knew as time went on that soccer is a big enough sport that it would succeed. It was just a matter of how much money were the owners willing to put to bring players. And if you look over, and just go back now over the last eight years of the money that owners are spending, I mean, to bring guys in like a Michael Bradley, a Josie Altador, to bring guys, you know, never in, in our life did we think that a guy like Tom Dwyer, an interleague change would be worth $1.5 million. Mm-hmm. So that's the point where we're at. The atmosphere now is absolutely ridiculous when you go to certain stadiums. It's, it's like being in Europe. And I think that's kind of the model of where we're starting to go, we're starting to move. And again, listen, you've you got to take out some of the grandfathered uh, initial inaugural uh, franchises. Yep, They've been going at it for a while. They've had to correct a lot of mistakes and try to reroute it. Sporting Kansas City's done a great job with that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, again, it's just the atmosphere to compare back in 96 when we just had the World Cup and people were trying to figure out what soccer was starting to become in the United States. Mm-hmm. And now, let's be honest, no matter what channel you put on, be it Univision, be it ESPN, be it Fox, be it anywhere in the world, you can catch an MLS game now. Yeah, and fantastic. I think what's really what's really interesting, what you just said, Marcello, is the, the, the way atmospheres have been created at stadiums. I mean, Atlanta seems pretty raucous. I mean, they've created a tradition, you know, they've got this golden spike yep. that they hammer in, and Arthur Blank, the owner yep. of the team, hammered it in at a game the other yep. day. Um, so you're starting Timber to see... Joe the, with, the, with the saw in Portland? Yeah, with the saw in Portland, that's kind of awesome. I love that. That's yeah. fun. And the corollary, though, has to be, and we're starting to see this, team owners, as you mentioned, being willing to spend. And the one thing that Atlanta has done is spend some money. They brought Brad Guzan back yeah. from, from England after a long career there. They've brought in some Argentine, um, other South American and Central American players that are at yep. the top of their games. This is a good team. They're a very good team. With Almaron, with Martinez. I mean, you bring in American players that fill in with Lorenowitz, Brad Guzan, Michael Parkhurst. They did a nice job. They did a really nice job. And this could be one of those franchises like we saw back with Bob Bradley in Chicago that in their first year could make a serious run at an MLS Cup. I mean, they're, they're young. They're exciting. They're, they're dynamic going forward, which is ridiculous, the counterattacks they hit teams with. So... Listen, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this is a team that, that can win. I mean, they'll be in the hunt for an MLS Cup in a big way with Toronto on the east side and the Red Bulls in Montreal. There, I mean, let, let, let's be honest. This is a team that was built to win this first year with the money that the owners spent. Well, and I think that's the trend line that we got to watch going forward in MLS, Marcello, is are more owners and will the league be willing to allow greater spending to lift the overall quality of the sport, particularly as more cities seem interested or are interested in getting franchises. You've got Cincinnati that draws 30 plus thousand for a, for, you know, for a second division team. Um, Do you see 
MLS being able to thrive with 30 or more teams? Or do you think that we need some a more European-like structure going forward as more cities want to get uh, in the game? Um, you know, I, here's the deal. I mean, when you talk about Europe, there's only a few teams that make money. Let, right. let's, let's just be straight up and honest. I mean, we see all the fun side of it. We don't see the financial side. The structure and everything is different. Listen, I, I think the biggest question is, will, will MLS eventually go to the European calendar? Correct? Right. That's a huge one. And uh, I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I think eventually we're going to have to, but I don't know if we're there yet. I don't know if on a February day when it's 24 degrees in New York or in Chicago and it's windy that a lot of people are going to go. And I think that's where you have to be careful a little bit right now. I think you've got to keep building momentum. You've got to keep building the sport to that point where the passion, I mean, there's so much passion there, but to take a 10 year old kid when it's 28 degrees or 24 degrees and it's snowing is different. Yeah. So we're talking about a league that's got 22 years of existence compared to European leagues, Mexican leagues that have more than 75 years of existence and culture. So uh, I do think eventually we're going to have to move to that, but I don't think that MLS is ready for that calendar change yet. Marcello Balboa is a broadcaster for Univision and the Colorado Rapids of Major League Soccer and a former member of the U.S. national team. Marcello, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Anytime, buddy. Anytime. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now it is time for After Balls. Well, actually, After Ball, because it's just me. And since it's just me... I get to choose the name, and I'm definitely going to honor the rookie place kicker for the Philadelphia Eagles, who nailed a 61-yard field goal as time expired to beat the New York Giants 27-24 on Sunday. His name is Jake Elliott. He's from Illinois. He went to college at Memphis and was drafted by the Bengals. According to his wiki, Elliott began playing football in high school when an assistant coach noticed his talent at a homecoming contest. Here's what he had to say after kicking the seventh longest field goal in NFL history in just his second game. In pregame, you kind of we kind of go over it and just kind of how I'm feeling during during my warm up and what what in the normal course of a game where where I would feel comfortable at. But you know, given given that situation, I kind of just ran up to the coaches at the end and just kind of pray, prayed and asked for a chance there. He prayed. He was rewarded. His prayers were answered. This is my Jake Elliott. It's already been a huge season for the one beacon of light in these dark times in the NFL. I speak, of course, of Scorigami, the imperfect name that SB Nation's incomparable John Boyce 
has given to the phenomenon of first-time final scores. Final scores, that is, that over the course of a century and more than 15,000 NFL games have never occurred. This season began with 407 unattained scores of up to 50-50, which was an increase from when Boyce came on the show last December because, thanks to Boyce, Pro Football Reference added to its list of missing scores games in which the losing team scores one point, which, as Boyce discussed, is indeed possible, when the winning team scores six or eight or more points. But back to this season. We are down to 405 missing scores. Yes, the first three weeks of the regular season have yielded two scoragamis, both involving the Los Angeles Rams. In week one, the Rams beat the Colts 46 to 9, and on Thursday night, they beat the 49ers 41 to 39. And it just dawned on me that a better name than scoragami might be scorgasm, because everyone is definitely exciting. I will leave that up to the people. But there is even more huge news on the scoragami front, and that is the debut of the scoragami Twitter bot. The bot which you can find at NFL underscore Scorigami, updates every game in real time with the percentage chances of it ending in Scorigami. It is the brainchild of Dave Mattingly, a 36-year-old technology director at an online gourmet food retailer who lives in Old Forge, Pennsylvania. He's got degrees in computer science and math, as you probably would guess. Mattingly told me in an email that he wasn't a Scorigami aficionado until he read Boyce's story. After the Rams-Colts milestone, he wondered, at what point in the game did Scorigami become likely? If you knew that, you could also figure out the chances of Scorigami at the start of any game and the most likely Scorigami remaining out there during a game. Mattingly devised a calculation, plugged it into Excel, formalized an algorithm, and built a bot. He tested it during week two during the one o'clock games, and then he unleashed the bot on Twitter for the four o'clock games. I'm biased, but this is genius. The bot live tweets a game's scorigami chances after every score and at the end of every quarter. It is, as you would hope, informative and deadpan. After Atlanta went up on Green Bay 34-10 two Sundays ago, the bot reported, this game has an 8.13% chance of ending in scorigami, most likely scorigami 51 0.48%. .48%. When the game ended 34-23, it reported, sadly, no scorigami. That score has happened 12 times before, last on January 3rd, 2016. And when scorigami does happen, well, the bot gets pumped. That's scorigami! Exclamation point, exclamation point. It gushed after the Rams 49ers result. It's the 1033rd instance of scorigami in NFL history. Mattingly admits that the bot does need some tweaks. It thinks that every game starts with a 4.4% chance of scorigami, which translates to 11 scorigamis a season, which even though we've had two this year already, it does seem kind of high. He also wants to adjust the bot's assumptions about the independence of scoring events and factor in some game strategy. For instance, when the Rams were ahead of the 49ers 41-33, the bot reported that the most likely scorigami would be 41-40, failing to understand that that there was zero chance that the Rams would have kicked an extra point 
in that situation after a touchdown. That game, though, was a scorigami watcher's dream. For the first three quarters, the scorigami chances were low, 5 to 8%. Then, with 12.50 to play in the fourth quarter, the 49ers missed an extra point, making the score 34-26, and the chances climbed above 10%. When the Rams scored to make it 41-26, scorigami chances went over 20%. And when the 49ers answered to make it 41-33 and crucially missed the extra point, we were on, in Mattingly's words, scorigami red alert. Not because of that score, it had happened in 1954 and 1960, but because of what could have happened with some highly possible scoring plays. Scorigamis of 44-33, 41-39, and 41-41 all were in play. When San Francisco scored with 2.13 to go and again missed the extra point, the chances of scorigami skyrocketed to 93%. That was inflated because the bot thought 41.40 was a likely scorigami. In any event, the Rams killed the clock and preserved the 41.39 scorigami, no doubt celebrating in the locker room not only their second win of the young season, but even more impressively, their second scorigami. So thank you, Dave Mattingly, for giving me and countless others, well, we actually can count them. There are 2,049 Twitter followers for the bot as I speak. Thank you for giving us something to care about this NFL season. Please follow the scorigami bot at NFL underscore Scorigami. That's NFL underscore Scorigami. That's our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. 
but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 